Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer a Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer a Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go, every day giftable, every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification, and they're satisfying to scratch no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. 
Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. All right, it's film study again. If you've forgotten, the Ravens just won a couple days ago, 26-14, victory over the Steelers on Sunday Night Football. Uh, episode previous to this, we broke down the defense. Today, we're going to break down the offense. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. Still riding that cool wave from that Pittsburgh win on Sunday night. <laughs> That's way better than riding a getting over a Pittsburgh loss or a yes. Ravens loss to the Pittsburgh. Yeah, those those I, are I, tough I, weeks. I, I was dreading it. It's a, it's a, you know, I, I don't really want to like totally harp on this, but I will say the process of doing the evaluations we do is is quite time consuming. And when we go into the night, there can be some conflict over people wanting to go to sleep in the household and others needing to keep scoring so they can write in the morning. That sort of thing can happen. So it's real nice to do it after a win. There's a lot less friction yeah. and tension, and we we uh, finish the job on time, and everybody's happy. Yeah, I think during the off season we kind of broke down one episode on how you do your process. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have to get to a little bit of that another time because I feel sorry for everything that you do, because <laughs> even on a win, because you watch these games like eight times. After, no, it's a labor of love. I yeah. know. I I know you love it. I I I could not understand. I would not be able to do it and on a tough loss uh i'm glad that you love doing it you have taught me a lot about the game because you know what you're doing and you watch these games over and over and over again so i I know that uh not only me but i know our listeners appreciate it as well and all the writer all the everyone over at russell street as well um so today we're going to talk about the offense and Joe Flacco immediately after the game when they went up and said, hey, you beat the Steelers. Isn't this exciting? How do you feel about this? And his response was, well, I'm disappointed in myself. We should have put up more points. We left po- we left points on the field. They did. They left some points on the field. There's no doubt about it. And some of it is, is fair self-disappointment. But it's easy to see the Ravens scoring 40 in this game. 40 to 14 would not have been an unreasonable outcome. In the first half alone, you had a very easy overthrow to Crabtree where he was open by about six or seven yards, would have had a clear run down the sideline. I think it's unlikely he would have been caught, but it certainly would have been a gain of at least 40 or 50 yards on the play. Uh, The fact that Alex Lewis, of course, Alex Lewis, do that every time. Alex Collins fumbled at the one-yard line, uh, also cost the team plenty. So, uh, you know, there were points left on the board. It was a thorough drubbing of the Steelers. I don't think there's any Steelers fans out there saying, well, if this has gone our way and this has gone our way, then we could have won this game. And if the refs screwed us and, you know, I just don't believe there's anybody out there saying it, it was a, it was a, a, a pretty clear domination. Yeah. And yes, the Ravens dominated uh, a lot more than the score showed to come out and, and score 14 points within the first five minutes of the game clock is it, it, immediately felt like different than yes. than your your pre, than previous Steelers games that this wasn't going to be a three-point victory. 
Yeah, f- I mean, well, I've seen him lead by 14 at Heinz Field and go down in the playoffs, so that's... It, oh, that no, no, I... I feel either. I was never but, comfortable. Yeah, right. But, the, but I do want to say that NBC's entire storyline of the game was ruined in about the first five minutes with Tony Jefferson's strip of Vince McDonald and, and the 14 to nothing game, 14 nothing score. The combination of those two things had, had screwed up a lot of their prep work, that's for sure. I know you like to, you like to point out that their storyline was broken with the with the strip. They did not get off script. They kept on plowing through and pretended oh. that 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 strip did not happen. And I still think that was an interception, not a uh, fumble. Yeah, I go with that. I, I think an interception is fine. But uh, they gave Vance McDonald a reception. He caught all five balls that were thrown to him in the game and just fumbled that one. All right. Well, if you have him in a PPR league, you are at least happy for that, <laughs> even though you then lost three points after the fumble. So oh, okay, <laughs> I, guess, I guess you weren't happy at that point. Um, all right, let's get into this. Let's start with uh, let's start with ample time and space because a tweet came in from uh, Jamie who says, "Hey Ken, what are the parameters for ample time and space?" I did a quick search but couldn't find anything, and you okay, can't find it because this is this is kind of this is your own mathematic. Your, this is your own formula. We've yeah, talked my, about it a few times. Definition. We gotta we gotta make sure we bring it up every couple of weeks because there's always new listeners. So let's get into ample time and space. Yeah, I, I want this to come up during a season about as often as I want to see a roughing the passer flag. So maybe three times during the season is is fine, but we want to see. We don't have to go over it more than that, unless we're but, celebrating it. Yeah, a, a lot of the listeners know it, but a three a, a ample time and space is essentially a three second pocket where the quarterback has room to step into his throw. That's the important component in a sixty degree arc to either either side, sixty degrees to either side of the intended receiver. So his feet aren't obstructed, and he's not feeling constrained in the pocket in that way. And the three seconds, often a quarterback will have the ball out before three seconds. People ask what happens under those circumstances. Well, then I have to actually take a look at how the blocking is set up and make a decision as to whether or not I think the pocket would have held up for that period of time. I would say usually it's fairly obvious, but in the, when it's not obvious what would have happened, it's not an ample time and space situation. It's instead marked as ball out quick which is a subset of the not ample time in situations where the quarterback may be bailing out the offensive line for getting rid of the ball quickly. So that's kind of the two definitions. It's the ample time and space definition going with the ball out quick definition that, that together provide a picture of how much opportunity that quarterback had. Right. Now, is, ample time and space is your formula, right? That's right. So my own design. You're not going to see this at PFF or anything else. No, no. PFF actually has a less strict definition of pressure. So both on the defensive side of the ball and the offensive side of the ball, I'll show more pressures. So the, the offensive linemen will give up more pressures in my system, and there'll be a few more pass rush events. And and defensive linemen and, and defensive pass rushers will will get, garner a few more pressures by invading the uh, integrity of the pocket. Oh. Well, Ken, we got to take this ample time and space, trademark it, license it, <laughs> it, it take all before uh, before all these big guys figure out what you're doing and, and how you're coming up with this formula. All right, fun so, times. All right, all right. So now that we laid it out, let's talk about how Flacco did with this. Sure, okay. So in this game, uh, Flacco, it seemed like he had all day to throw, and he did have a good amount of time, or a reasonable amount of time, but it's only 19 out of 44 ample time and space opportunities, which is 43%. Um, a lot of the other times, though, he was getting the ball out quickly. So a lot of those, you know, we saw a lot of slants to Sneed, some quick passes there. Uh, you know, we saw other quick passes all over the field. We saw some some design plays uh, where the ball went out once on, I think, on a middle screen. 
so we, we had we had a, ver- a variety of different uh, play calls that really weren't designed necessarily to even be set up for ATS, uh, but yet the ball was out quickly enough and and some good yardage accrued from it. Now, when I split out those opportunity sets, I see that Flacco, with ample time and space, let me get to my little chart here, um, completed 16 of 19 throws for 250 yards, two TDs, and zero interceptions. That is at 13.2 yards per pass and is one of the best figures he's ever had in the nine years I've been collecting data on this. So the average over that period has been 8.1 yards per play with ample time and space. And uh, and 13.2 is really exceptional. Individual games, they really very rarely gotten higher. I think I remember a 15 back a few years ago, but uh, but this was in the top five ever that uh, that he's recorded. Without ample time and space, he was 12 of 23 for 103 yards, was sacked twice for eight yards, 3.8 yards per play, and that's just a hair below average. Average for without ample time and space is 4.2 yards uh, for the last uh, previous eight years. So uh, that gives you an idea. Overall, 86 yards better than his in his opportunity set. So we look at that and we say, okay, the offensive line gave him this set of opportunities. Did he make good on that set of opportunities? Well, he he did. And he did 86 yards better in this game. Uh, a lot of that was uh, success on the deep ball in this game. In, in particular, he throws to John Brown were good, and he had some decent yard after the cat yards after the catch from Max Williams in this game. Uh, so positive things generally happening or, or around the field, and uh, uh, this was one of the really good ones. The other thing about it was conditions were very nice at Heinz Field. So you have a nice warm weather game with no precipitation. That's perfect for passing the football, and it was kind of an ideal opportunity for the Ravens to flex their speed against a really questionable Pittsburgh secondary. Right. It was nice to go to Pittsburgh and it not be December, November. And yeah, not I, the cold, snow, rainy. I think they probably like that. I think you know, I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure the Ravens don't like playing every every year prime time at Pittsburgh. In fact, the reason I think that is they they once in the Harbaugh years asked for that not to happen again this year, and uh, apparently they got their way the one time. And they played some uh, prime time games in Baltimore in the Pittsburgh rivalry, but they played fewer. And and it just does seem like like they would, um, you know, av- avoiding primetime games in Pittsburgh is a good thing. And if right. you ask for no primetime game in Pittsburgh, that means you get no Thursday night game in Pittsburgh. So if you if you actually if they'll actually listen to you, well, and, they they don't do division games on Thursdays anyway, do they? Oh yeah, yeah with Cincinnati earlier this year. Okay, that, you're right. You're right. I'm wrong. It's I, it's the biggest hose job imaginable, Joshua. I do I do an article every year on the schedule. And and having a Thursday road game is the worst single thing that can happen, except sure. for a division Thursday road game, which is even worse. Right, right. And that's why, for some reason, I was thinking they had restrictions on Thursdays. I think they did early, and then when yeah. they expanded to full season Thursdays, well, they got rid of it. They, ha- they have a way that they could do that. It doesn't take a set theory genius to figure this out. But since you play the same rotational schedule of divisional opponents or NFC opponents, and you could use either. But you or you could use a, a mix of the two by you, by doing it across divisions. You, you could you could make it all intra-conference games in inside the conference games where you play you know the same division. So that, so for instance this year the the uh, the Ravens play the AFC West. The entire AFC North plays the AFC West. If you had all the AFC North games were Thursday night against the AFC West, then you'd avoid this divisional crap 
where you're giving huge advantages away. And then you could have all the AFC East games, whoever they're playing in the NFC, they would have those divisional games be the one. So two divisions could play the opposite conference and two divisions could play the opposite uh, division in the um, in the within the conference. So you could get a nice mix of conference and non-conference games, opponents who don't see each other. It, it'd be a great way to do it, and and it would avoid this absolutely unfair bullshit with these Thursday night divisional games, which are just a huge schedule buster. Yeah, of course, and I don't. Yeah, I don't, I'm not a fan of Thursday games. I don't think many people are, except for the people who are making money off of the Thursday night games. <laughs> It's part of the league. It's not going away. We just need to figure out how to minimize the competitive impact and the impact in the playoffs. Right. Now, Joe was able to get all this ample time and space and have all this time with the run game not really working too much. Yeah, I mean, they didn't do too much with the run. They ran uh, 30 times for 96 yards. Some of that in the second half was at times where the Steelers knew the run was coming, so it was going to be less effective. Uh, One of the real big runs of the game, I remember, was on that final drive where they, on the very first play of it, uh, Buck Allen ran for 11 yards and Skura pushed him upfield for what it seemed like about the last four or five of that. So, uh, you know, I, I love it when you can just jam a running drive down the opponent's throat, whether they like it or not, at the end of a game. And that, that was part of what tells you a game is really uh, one-sided is when a team can do that. All right, all right. I'm going to sneak another tweet in here early because we got a bunch of tweets this week. We'll get to the mailbag, of course. But uh, I want to get this one in because I want to talk about the schemes of the offensive line. And Sarah... Uh, can, can this, I, let, me, let me go yeah. back for one more second here because I want to, don't want to get off ATS for until we talk about this because this is a big deal. Alex Collins obviously was not happy with that fumble. Yes. And I, I, you know, there's been commentary online that Alex Collins might be losing his job. I mean, there's nobody to take the job from Alex Collins. You know, they're not going to trade for Le'Veon Bell. In fact, there's now talk that Le'Veon is going to report in Pittsburgh for week seven. Uh, there's uh, there is no alternative. And, and he is the best alternative. But one of the things that is really he is just lighting it up now these last few weeks is with his pass blocking. He is he, he had a beautiful uh, uh, low block in this game and he had a must have been two or three rib-busting chip blocks. So chip block is when, uh, you know, Hurst usually, or, or perhaps Stanley on their side, has a guy teed up and, and usually centered, and the running back just it gives him a jarring hit from the side and knocks the wind out of a pass rusher. And Collins throws him like nobody. He really throws his whole body into it, and you can tell he is loving it. I mean, some guys don't really like it because the, the increased chance of injury, or right. they just want to use their hands to kind of kind of set the guy up more for the for the tackle. <laughs> Collins is trying to inflict pain on that pass rusher when he does it, and I really love it. It's he is a lot of fun to watch when I'm looking at the offensive line. That's that's great. That's good to hear. Um, yeah, Collins. After that fumble, it seemed like he got the doghouse treatment for a while. And then they eventually brought him back. I, I think I don't think he came back till the third quarter. Yeah, he, he he was out for a while. And then one of the things you'll notice is that obviously they're still concerned about his fumbling because they had um, Buck Allen in the game on the final drive for all four of those snaps. And on the previous drive, I think they had him in some too. So basically what that's saying is we're not going to lose this game with a fumble at this point. So, Alex, you're not going to be in there. Right. And that was, and, that was a knock against Alex in Seattle too. It, it was. And, you know, you, you – you, the goods come as is. 
in this game. Right. You know, you, 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 uh, there are conditional draft picks that can apply to this, but Collins, when you, when you have a wa- waiver wire pickup, the goods come as is. And you take the good with the bad. You hope you can fix it. Collins immediately showed he was a, a very dangerous breakaway runner, and that's why he kept getting co- chances last year despite a couple of early fumbles. Yes. You know, he had... Couple, we had one game of nine for 82, and you know he was getting tons of yards per per run, and and uh, you know he'll keep his job, and, and honestly he'll be fine. Looks honestly like he's he's good also as a receiver here, and you know he had the receiving touchdown in this game on a on a nice uh, uh, play where they got it blocked up nicely and perhaps illegally, but uh, he had a, uh, a you know good game as a receiver, and I think he's he'll he'll he brings you more in the passing game now with this combination of pass blocking receiving we've seen the last couple of weeks right is the fumbles the reason that Alex Collins is not your goal line running back whenever they get up in there close they switch to a lot of Buck Allen well I mean we obviously had the fumble the goal line this right. game, but, but yeah Buck Allen I I think this there's other reasons why you do it that way McGahee was a taller back and they like to run that stretch play where the Ravens really had seven heavies in the game including Haloti Nada and that was their bread and butter for a couple seasons in there McGahee scored a ton of touchdowns and, and it was it was one of the things you got with McGee in there was a, a back with good vis, uh, vision and good decisiveness. So they were they were able to take advantage of that. Collins is a little bit shorter, and I think you know you you probably gain something additional with with Allen in the game at that point. Allen's also proven to be a pretty good back as a fullback to try and get you a yard, and also just in general when you need two yards. Uh, um, uh, Allen is a pretty good guy. When you need eight yards, Allen is probably not your guy because there's right. been a lot of he's he's a very low yards per touch guy. So, right, right, all right. Uh, let's get into the scheme and let's go with Sarah's tweet now, which says it seems like both the offense and the defense both played some unusual formations. Yeah, so we can talk about some of the basic stuff, but Sarah's right on right on track with this because they had, you know, first of all, they played more fullback more heavy sets than they played in the halfway in recent weeks. So they had 15 plays with uh, two backs. Some of that, of course, was was just uh, uh, using Buck Allen as a fullback, but the 11 with Ricard, so they're going heavy a little bit more. That's not unusual. I, I just include that. They had seven empty sets. They weren't tremendously successful with empty sets because they're all going to be passing, but they had seven for 41 on the empty sets, and, and that's a little something. It's a, it's a decent amount. I didn't – I meant to do this, but I didn't go back and look at how many of those were third-down conversions with empty but uh, but you know that's it's that's a lot for the Ravens to run empty in a game that they're winning. In a game they're trailing, they'd run empty even more. But but in a game they're they're winning, you wouldn't think that they do it very often. They had five unbalanced plays in this game, and there were two extra special ones. So we'll talk a little bit about that. They went unbalanced right um, uh, once with Ronnie Stanley standing split right and ineligible now we saw this in the in the last game with alex lewis he was split off to the left side ineligible and just by waving his hands he was able to get von miller not to rush the passer so he freezed him froze him um ronnie in this case stood split right and obviously the steelers had been on the film and tj watt kind of pretended like he was going to fall for it then he just went ahead and rushed the passer and ronnie stanley was just out there twiddling his thumbs and he actually moved past the line of scrimmage which he shouldn't do where he, how he can help the team is he should move backwards behind Flacco to threaten, behind the, the line at which Flacco is, to threaten the receipt of a backward lateral. That's how he could, he could actually draw a defender away. But he didn't do it in this case, and, uh, and the Steelers weren't buying it. They obviously had, had done their homework on the, on the plays the week before. But uh, that play, in the end, went for a two-yard sack. So 
Uh, Flacco didn't really have to get sacked in the play. Skura had given up a little frontside pressure in the in the middle, but uh, uh, Flacco eventually just walked right up into the sack rather than throw the ball away, which I thought was kind of silly. So uh, uh, bad play for him in that particular case, but uh, but also a, a, a pressure allowed by Skura. Sure, 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 and that's some things. Uh, that's a place where we can see Joe grow. He had a mistake in the fourth quarter like that where he could have just went down with the ball and let the clock continue, but he threw it away and stopped the clock. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's times when it's good to take a sack like like what you're mentioning uh, there, and there's times when it's good to throw the ball away, and those right. are two two things where he did the wrong thing. Now, let's remind ourselves, Joe Flacco is very good at this. I mean, he doesn't take a lot of unnecessary sacks. He takes the necessary ones. He generally knows how to throw the ball away, although he's not always out of the pocket to do it. Lamar Jackson is the guy who runs into sacks just at will, and and he always tries to make a play and, and, and yes. always thinks he can, but his speed at this level is not as extraordinary relative to the other players on defense there, and that often can, can get him into trouble, so... Uh, we already saw that a lot in the uh, in the preseason and in the game against Buffalo when he when he had some extended playing time that he he was uh, very sack willing. Yeah, and I you know what, and I don't think it's a speed issue with Lamar. I think it's a it's a head and eyes issue of of catching up with the speed of the game because he's seeing holes and he's seeing them still at the college level where the guys close those holes a whole lot quicker now yeah. at the NFL level. So I, yeah, I, yeah. I I'm not concerned. I think he'll get there. Right. He needs to. He, I mean, he, the other head issue with that is he needs to keep his head down the field. He needs to keep his eyes, you know, looking yes. looking for that open receiver. So even when he does step up, it, there's still an option to throw the ball there. He hasn't just tucked and committed to the run at that point. Right. It is interesting to watch that. I like that he gets this year behind Joe, where we're seeing all the other rookie quarterbacks have to start this year in the NFL. Everyone that was drafted along with him. Mm-hmm. So we, we we were talking some formation stuff, but let's let's jump off the Lamar Jackson for a thing. Is there anything in the mailbag about this, by the way, or do, is this a? Uh... Uh, no, there's nothing in the mailbag. Uh, Lamar Jackson came up uh, last night on Section 336, so I wanted to make sure we got to this today because the Ravens did make a change in using him on third down, where we saw a lot of first down, maybe a second down before. This time they pulled him in some third down, and even I, I think there was even like a third and goal that they pulled him in on. Yeah, really good point. And and there was a big play early in the game where there was a a uh, timeout called by Pittsburgh on third. I think it was a third and one play on the second yeah. drive. La- last second, last second timeout. Yeah, last second timeout. But the the Ravens did two things on that play. They did insert Lamar Jackson, which was pretty cool. But they also inserted Orlando Brown at right tackle for James Hurst. Now that is a pretty big red flag that you want to use Orlando Brown somehow as a as a run blocker to try and make space for Lamar. And in point of fact, they started to run that play, and you don't know how much the Steelers already knew they'd call timeout or whatever, that were reacting to the whistle faster. But Lamar broke into level two immediately on that right side and looked like he could run for a touchdown on the play. And uh, I don't have a time reference for you right here, but but anyway, I, I think most people who are watching the game know the play I'm talking about. And and it was actually Orlando Brown on the field who helped uh, seal the seal block to the inside to create that space for Lamar. So I- impressive play. Uh, you know, it's a good bit of trickery, and I think making a personnel change like that is probably always worth it because I don't think Orlando Brown is that much worse of a pass blocker than James Hurst. And he he if you put something in the head of the opponent that's probably a good thing regardless of what you're actually trying to do yeah and i think this was the first 
great. The Lamar Jackson plays haven't really gotten us much yet. Um, mm-hmm. But I think this is the first game where you, I could really watch it and say, yeah, the defense is a little uh, shaken up whenever he goes on the field because as soon as he comes out on the field, you see all the defenders pointing. You see the, the sideline yelling, and they're, they're paying attention. They, they spent some time this week saying, hey, what if Lamar comes on the field? Yeah, well, the thing we still have not seen on, on one of these insertions, he threw the ball, of course, some when, when he came in the game as a replacement for Joe, but when they're both on the field, we still haven't seen him throw the ball. Right. So that's when it's really going to get interesting. And, and you know, they did some – when they had two quarterbacks, when they had Smith on the field occasionally with Flacco in 2008, they would have some throwback plays where Flacco would be by the sideline and, you know, nobody's really covering him. Somebody stays five yards opposite him. But Flacco would take a step back there, mm-hmm. accept the lateral, and then throw a long bomb. So – I, right. I, I'm, I'm looking for that. And, I'm looking for him to just yes. move out of the pocket, draw some defenders, and then get somebody open in level two or on two, have two options, one one medium, one deep to throw to. Right, and that brings me to what I don't like when these Lamar plays are called is I don't like the Lamar behind center and Joe out as a wide receiver because when Joe goes out as a wide receiver, he doesn't try. He stands perfectly still and doesn't even move. So then it feels like you're just taking a man off the field at that point. Right. Well, you uh, uh, to this is true of all players who you're going to sit out in that position. If you have an ineligible receiver over there, he absolutely needs to move behind the spot the quarterback is in. If if once the other team has keyed to the fact that he's not really a receiver, so you want to put your hands up initially for the football. That's fine. But as soon as that doesn't work out. Retreat five yards and be ready to receive the ball there because that's a position that should scare the hell out of the opponents. Yeah, but and, and should draw. But I don't think Joe even raises his hands. I think he just goes and stands yeah, over there and waits. You're talking about what he does now or what yes. you've seen him do, as opposed to what he could be coached to do. Yeah. So it's 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 really a question of the the Ravens need to change some of their offensive scheme to make Joe a threat as a secondary passer by having him be the yes. be get behind Jackson in terms of or, or if the whole plan is to to set people up with thinking that just like me that Joe's a wasted space and suddenly one week he's going to catch one and run uh-huh. I'm all for that too if that's what you're <laughs> setting up then show me the big play and I think that's, that's what everyone in Baltimore is waiting for is we get excited when Lamar takes the field but we're waiting for it to work we're waiting for the big play yeah, well, they, I go back to 2008 again, and Joe did catch a 45-yard ball that year I against the that. Raiders. And, and it, he did it on a handoff. He did it on a handoff that was a, a reverse, and then he, he swung out. And frankly, it was too fast for the Raiders linebacker. Line, Ravens linebacker, I think it was Beaker. It was a little slow to um, uh, recognize the play. But Joe was ahead of it, and, uh, you know, long bomb. If it had been thrown on target, it would have been a touchdown. As it was, Joe had to lay out for it, make the grab, and it, it was a beauty. But I, I would love to see Flacco's receiver again, too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he's a big guy. Get him downfield. Um, let's get into, speaking of big guys, let's get into Max Williams lining up and, and kind of hiding. Okay, so we talked a little bit about this on the defensive episode, but this is where it really belongs. So we're going to just go over this briefly again. And I had an interaction on Twi- exchange on Twitter today that I thought might you know some of the listeners might like to hear about if they didn't already read it. But Williams lined up at guard and was offset from the line of scrimmage. And I thought pretty clearly so. In fact, it's so obviously so that I thought if a guard had lined up in that spot, it would clearly have been a penalty. Well, I, I mentioned in the last show it was Gene Steratore had been the rules expert. It actually was Terry McCauley who was the rules expert that they had on the broadcast. So I, I tweeted to him and asked him, you know, first of all, if a guard had set up in that position, would he have been flagged for it? 
And and uh, if so, doesn't that mean that Williams lining up in that position was necessarily legally formed and in a legal formation? So and and he said no, he didn't think a guard would have been flagged for it, but he would have been warned. And then there was some sort of secondary comment about how if the tackle had been offset for him, which obviously wasn't part of the wasn't part of the question I was asking. Uh, you know, then he would have probably been been flagged. But I don't believe him. I think that, you know, a, a offset guard at that point wearing an ineligible number who had not reported would clearly have been flagged for that formation. Uh, I, I do. I respect him. And I, I'm glad that he responded all the years of, uh, of service he's had. But the other thing, key thing that came out is he confirmed that they do have a meeting with between the coaches and officials beforehand and that they they do talk so the ravens have an opportunity to explain the trick plays they have so they don't surprise the officials which is an important thing to do so uh, it's not like the officials didn't know that was coming and it's probably not like the officials didn't maybe give the ravens some guidance on what to make sure they do to make sure they don't get flagged in that situation so i think the, the ravens probably met every standard that was expected of that officiating crew, whether Terry McCullough thought a guard would be flagged in that, in that situation or not. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you blew my mind with the whole meeting with the officials. I had no clue that that happened and they went over plays until uh, Mm -hmm. Monday night. Yeah. Apparently that happens all the way down in football to pretty low levels. And when I say that at least down to the high school level of football, uh, I, I, we were on vacation. We met a college coach once and he, he was a, Atlantic 10, A10 referee, and and he knew a lot about this. And there were there were all these situations. And I said, "Had you heard about the A11? It's just a coincidence entirely. A11 offense, and it's something they they a guy in New England designed for a kind of a bad high school program, which ran every play from on offense from a scrimmage kick formation. And the significance of that is on scrimmage kick formations, you're not required to have five numbers in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that are ineligibles on the field." And so anybody on the play can be an eligible receiver, but there's other rules for scrimmage kick formations that you have to uh, go by. And he'd never heard of it, but it was, it's, it was a very interesting conversation. And if, if anyone wants to look up, look up that, Google A11 offense and see what you find. Fascinating write-up on how that offense is designed. But one of the things they suggest is that you need to meet with the officials for a couple of two-hour sessions to get them to understand how the offense is run so they're not flagging you every play. Right. And – uh yeah, that makes sense. And with the NFL changing rules all the time, you always want to talk to the officials because it seems like there's always a play every Sunday on some game that no one on the field knows what's going on and no one on the field knows the right cause, whether it's an official or the coach or something. There's always some confusion. Right. And you, d- you don't want it to come up that, that – uh... The Belichick situation was very poorly handled a few years ago in the playoff loss at New England in 20, 2014. We're still stinging from that in terms of how the officials handled the reporting of eligible receivers in that game. Because when you have a change in, in the reporting of an eligible receiver, there should be a opportunity for the defensive side to sub. And, and that was not observed in that game for whatever reason. I think the officials really choked on that one. But uh, but anyway, they uh, uh, we are, we're here now. We can... Four years later, I, I guess we should be getting past that game. Yes, yeah. Um, explain to me this Ronnie Stanley split right ineligible. Okay, so that, I, that's the play I mentioned before that, that right. the uh, that he, okay. he he split right. The Steelers weren't buying it, and uh, T.J. Watt just rushed the okay. passer anyway. And uh, and the only thing again, Ronnie Stanley should have done is move behind 
Flacco, so he, he is at least a danger to accept the lateral at that point. Instead, he wandered downfield a yard or two, and that didn't you know that didn't do anything. Right. Could have been a flag. Okay, actually. so that's the point where you want him to go back. All right. Yeah. Um, anything else we missed as far as unusual formations this Sunday? In, you know, I think that's a lot of it. Uh, you know, they, they, a lot of the rest of the stuff they did, they still got plenty under wraps. I feel like, you know, just given the basic additional switches that we've seen from Morningweg, I feel like there's a lot of additional plays you could run off of those formations, including a lot of these double pass plays where, where we haven't seen that, including a lot of the pass backs to an ineligible receiver, and then that allowing you to have six eligible receivers down the field would be, would be really cool. So they've got lots of things they could do, but, uh, but I, you know, we have not seen the whole playbook, and there's plenty for, for Marty still to, to, to pull out of his bag of tricks. Right. It wasn't necessary in this game. Uh, let's get to the offensive line scoring, and let's start with Ronnie Stanley since we were just mentioning him. Okay, so uh, Ronnie had a, a solid, I wouldn't say a spectacular game, and this is a, qu- a, a question where PFF probably has him for less pressures than I did, but I have him for three pressures plus additional two half charges. Uh, he had a false start. Uh, scores of .74 raw, B-minus after adjustment uh, for having to face Bud Dupree. Bud Dupree has really evolved, or evolved is not the way, matured into one of the better pass rushers in the league. He's near the top of the PFF pressure list for the year. So, uh, you know, he's a he's a, a solid pass rusher and a good opponent for Stanley. Um, and uh, and he did have some trouble with him. He had some trouble with largely getting bull rushed. Now, one of the things I've liked about Stanley, and, and if you're getting bull rushed, that's the least severe because it means you're not getting beat by speed. You're not getting forced into make holding calls by getting beat outside. Bull rush generally means you're keeping your position between the quarterback and the offensive and the defensive and the pass rusher. But you're you're uh, uh, still staying square to him, even though you're losing ground. So the quarterback has a better chance to either move off the spot or get the ball out when that's all you're giving up. On the other hand, bull rushes tend to be pretty fast, and the fast ones obviously break down the pocket quickly, and uh, and they're not ideal either. But anyway, by and large, bull rushes are less severe negative con- consequences to them than speed rushes and some other uh, spin moves and whatnot that can turn into sacks like that. Gotcha. Um, all right, Alex Lewis. What's going on with him? It seemed like he wasn't moving that well on the field. Yeah, you you got that right. Um, I, this is I've been a, a fan of Alex Lewis and a proponent of Alex Lewis through these first four games, even if as his play has been stumbling a little bit. Now he had twelve missed blocks in this game. That's an awful lot. In fact, I really would have to look back to see how many times that's ever occurred during the years I've been scoring this way, but I don't think it's many. And a lot of it, he just seemed to be stumbling around. I'm going to almost say like a zombie. He had eight pulls in this game. I scored him for making six. He had some very marginal ones among those six. So he's only got two of his misses came that way. But he missed a bunch in level two, a bunch of L2 NBs on my score sheet. Level two, no block. And that's not Alex Lewis I know. Alex Lewis that I remember from two years ago that I've even seen this year earlier, very decisive in level two, moves there, find block, make block. And he just didn't see me moving nearly as well in this game. I, I, I can't say exactly what the problem is, but he needs to not have a game like this occur again in, in those terms. Uh, just very out of sorts looking on the field. Uh, he did allow a sack. Uh, that was a bad stunt exchange with Stanley. They had some difficulty in terms of making those work. I had some split pressures among them, but that sack I gave entirely to Lewis because it was really his inability to 
uh, pick up the stunting player after he'd handed over his. So, uh, you know, not a great game from Lewis. Had some negative pass blocking events. Didn't make all his run blocks. Uh, a D is the score um, after I make an adjustment for him. Uh, frankly, I thought after we'd gone through the game, it was probably going to be an F. But uh, but it, it, in terms of actual pass rush events, he gave up two half pressures and the one sacks. And the Ravens had 72 plays. So when you run that many offensive plays, you expect, obviously, more negative events to occur. And the, the, the system uh, eventually forgives him for a lot of his uh, uh, errors or, or gradually forgives him for a lot of his errors. All right. Uh, a quarter through the season, are we just marking Skura down as he's our center? Yeah, I mean, honestly, he's playing real well. Uh, had another pretty good game here. And, uh, you know, centers don't give up that many pressures. I had him for two in this game. Uh, B score for the game, a B grade for the game. Uh, he didn't have any other negative events. He did have six missed blocks in the game that were, that were uh, aside from that, I like to look at missed blocks and, and, and categorize them two ways. Some missed blocks are not that serious, and moving to level two and, and not making a block is not that serious. Pulling and not biking a block is usually not that serious. But when you get beaten and the ball is out quickly, that can be indicative of a bigger problem. And he had three of the six, which I don't think is all that bad, honestly, where he was beaten at the line of scrimmage, once on a run play, twice on pass plays, uh, that, that could have been um, uh, tr- could have turned into negative events but didn't. All right. Um, how about Marshall Yanda? So Yanda, you know, always seems to have a good game. And this week, it, it looked like he was going to suffer from a holding call. I looked at the thing. It's it's fairly obvious that's Max Williams on the hold. I talked to the Ravens about it today, the Ravens PR staff, and they said that on Tuesday, the league looks at this thing with the Elias Sports Bureau, and they will probably correct it, or they may correct it. And in this case, Patrick Leeson said he uh, uh, he'll – ask the league about it again, or ask the league to look at it again if they do not correct this one. But anyway, you can you can kind of see Max Williams is getting a jersey grab in there. Yonda has his hand extended, but it's not it's not anything close right. to a hold. And Yonda looked at the big board to see the replay of the play and threw his arms up. He couldn't see that he'd hold it. And he's right. He didn't hold on the play. And it was just last week, of course, against Denver that, that Yonda got flagged for a – a false start that was actually by James Hurst. So interesting that he's accumulating other players' penalties. Right. That's what happens when you're a big guy. They just look over and they see you. Uh, well, speaking of James Hurst, I didn't see much from him on uh, on the game, which is generally a good thing if you're an offensive line and I don't play and I don't see you much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, you're, if your number doesn't get called, that's a good thing. A lot of my comments about Stanley go for Hurst as well. Hurst is doing a good job, and some of it is the amount of chip blocking the Ravens are doing and a little bit of the help they're giving the offensive linemen, but they're finding ways to keep Hurst's man in front of him. And a lot of that is Hurst, but but a lot of it is also some of the help he's getting. In this game, he allowed three and a half pressures that I, as I have it scored. That's three fulls plus one half. Uh, so that was the only negative events he had. He did miss eight blocks. Scores a C-plus on the game. Uh, I positive about what's occurring with here you know he's doing this against largely a four-man pass rush for the Steelers there will be more difficult times where he has to do some stunt exchanges and there's more going on with his responsibilities as it stands right now at tackle he's the beneficiary of some people call them pop and slide I call them the help blocks that come from from Marshall Yanda that uh, where Yanda initially pins a man for Skura at center 
usually a defensive tackle, and then he moves to the right to give whatever help he can to bail out James Hurst if he's giving ground in the pocket. So he's the beneficiary of that. He's the beneficiary of some of these Collins chip blocks that are you know breaking the edge rusher's ribs, and uh, you know just some, he, it's not like he's not getting help. But it's also we got to give credit where credit's due, and and I, I think that James Hurst has played at a higher level this year than I could have reasonably expected at right tackle. I'm not sure still that he's the best choice at right tackle, but he's he's performed well enough to not make it a terrible choice. Gotcha. Um, all right, let's get to the MVPs. Where uh, I explained it on the last episode, but I don't think I need to. It's MVPs. Everyone should know what this topic is. <laughs> so uh, let's go backwards, three to one. And three to one. Ken, uh, Ken, who do you have as your number three? John Brown, my number three. You know, pretty... Uh, apparent game, uh, 71-yard catch, uh, target of some long balls. Flacco underthrew one of the long balls to him that could have could have been another big play, but uh, a, a great game for John and what he's brought in terms of a deep threat is is a valuable part of the Ravens' offense. I love that we have some wide receivers now. I wish Crabtree would catch the ball, but I like that we have wide receivers. Uh, my number three is Max Williams, and I'm giving him a little star this week just for that one-trick play. No, that's fair. Williams had some good yards after the catch, otherwise, and uh, and look good. I'll give my number two. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the Josh treatment and give it to the entire offensive line. Um, it was a yeoman's effort. Uh, it wasn't an an outstanding effort, but I, there was there wasn't really another single player. Yonda, of course, I could have given it to alone, but in general, the offensive line did quite well in this game. The the, the one exception being Lewis, who had kind of another off week, but. Uh, no complaints, and if they all play this well every game, they'll you know this team is going to be fine. And uh, my number two is Justin Tucker. He's always solid, but especially in in Pittsburgh, and he loves kicking there. And I just gotta, you can't say anything bad about him. Yeah, great pick. No no objection on that. My number one is Flacco. Uh, uh, huge game. Beat his expected yards by eighty six. I think is the key nut metric for me in giving it to him as opposed to anyone else on the offense and, and you know the other guy I guess would be Brown that you could maybe put ahead of him but to me Flacco's plus 86 in the expected yards is the is the big metric coming out of this game all right my last guy is James Urban so I'm kind of going with you on the Flacco pick so Joe's been through a lot of quarterback coaches and we keep talking about what is different this year with Joe is it that he has wide receivers is it that he has health and I want someone to look into this is it James Urban and is this guy speaking to Joe differently than he had than the past few quarterback coaches. Is there something because it seems like Joe's ball is coming out faster. Joe's moving around more. Joe's having fun again. Right. I, I you know that's a good pick too. I heard James James Urban in camp and they had a nice they had a nice schedule of interviews that day uh, that were all basically related to Lamar Jackson. Yes, because uh, James Urban's history is with Michael Vick, so people say, oh well, Lamar. Yeah, but but very, but what's he doing now? Yeah, it is very well done. Obviously, he's got to be he's got to be working with Flacco, and you know whether or not Flacco likes someone is clearly a good issue in terms of his play. I mean, he got into some squabbles clearly in the past with with Cam Cameron, you know, where he would pronounce his name a different way that was, that was <laughs> right. kind of almost derisively, you know, yeah, that's what I mean, Cam kind of thing. You know, he just you'd hope you wouldn't have that kind of thing come up. I know he wants to run the show. I know he wants to be the the, the guy. And he he'll get there in terms of his office, but he can't be above all forms of criticism. He just he can't be. I feel like the last QB coach that he praised was Jim Zorn, and that's been a while. <laughs> yeah. So, 
All right, uh, let's get on to the mailbag. Uh, getting your questions. Use the hashtag Film Study Mailbag on Twitter. That helps us to find them so we can answer them all uh, each week. Uh, first one up is from uh, Miggy Duran. Uh, Hi, Josh. Big fan of the podcast from Mexico. When Jimmy is back, do you expect Carr to play some nickel? He did it sometime past se- in past seasons and watching Tavon's problems versus big receivers like AJ, they could use them help there. Okay, so I think that's a good point. And, and he's right that, that we saw a little bit of Carr in the nickel last year. Uh, part, of the prob- part of the reason they had Carr in the nickel last year was that Tavon was out. Now, what I'll say about Tavon is he is head and shoulders above the other nickel corners on this team. He's just a far better cornerback. In fact, I, you could make the case that Tavon really deserves an inside-outside role that's similar to Webb, but you can see the Ravens are almost playing no snaps where they don't have the nickel on the field this year. So now, the second part is the big corner component to that, and, and would it be worth coming inside for that? Well, usually your slot guy is a change of direction guy, but when you do have a bigger lineup in there that may include a flex tight end, the guy the Ravens have been using in big nickel has been uh, Chuck Clark. So they've been bringing a safety in to cover the slot uh, on those plays. So I think either way, there's kind of a better option than Carr in the slot. So while I think you know it's it's good to find out where could you use a guy who played well certainly against the Steelers, uh, played very poorly against Denver, but but came back and had a big game. I love the fact that the Ravens are actually going to have a difficult decision on how to allocate snaps with Jimmy Smith back. There's a good chance that Carr is going to end up losing some snaps. I don't think Humphrey should really lose many snaps at all, um, and, and and Smith has to play somewhere. Uh, I don't think Tavon is going to be the guy to lose snaps because Tavon is too unique in terms of his change of direction skills in the slot and what he brings to you as a pass rusher there. Another thing I'll say about Carr is that Carr's durability is amazing. And one of the things I found when I looked at him before he came to the Ravens was he almost never participated in a run tackle uh, unless it was absolutely necessary. So he's he was basically never second man to the ball. Tony Jefferson loved to be second man to the ball. Most cornerbacks are told in the NFL, stay away from the stay away from the pile. We don't want you getting hurt on a on a stupid four yard run play, you know, where the difference is between, you know, three and four yards by you sticking your shoulder in there. It's not worth it to us. And he is he maintained his durability in the league by by being very cognizant of avoiding contact. So, oh, I'm sorry. The point I was making with that is he's not an ideal candidate for Big Nickel because Big Nickel, you want a run support guy, and he's 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 not your guy for that. All right. Even though he's larger. Gotcha. Um, how do you expect looking ahead? How do you expect the offense to look for the Browns compared to the Steelers? Do you anticipate this being a trap game? Will Marty keep up the unpredictable style? Will he try to throw some more uh, Lamar? Will he save these for later in the year? <laughs> okay, so Minion Hunter wants to ask well, the entire season's worth of questions. Yeah. So gonna, well, we're going to go through these pretty quickly now. Yeah, and, let's and, focus and, just and, on the and, and let's just focus just quickly on the Browns game with some of these questions. Okay. So in terms of the Browns and Steelers, I am not concerned about the Ravens' specificity of game plan against the Browns. I think they will try hard to win this game. I think everybody realizes this is a critical divisional game. It is an opportunity for a divisional road win. That could be important as a tiebreaker versus the Bengals for certain, also versus the Browns. It's not a tiebreaker, but it's a because the Browns already have a tie, so we can't really tie with them. But it, but it could be a important decider in terms of the two-game flip in the standings. So 
critical game um, uh, coming up, and the Ravens don't have a lot of opportunities on the schedule to get a road win. So this is one they they need to try and convert. They're about a three-point favorite, which means they're given about a a 60-40 chance to win this game. Uh, You need to convert some of those tough win opportunities uh, during a season. They just converted a 40% opportunity at Pittsburgh. That doesn't mean you give up on a 60% opportunity at Cleveland. Right, right. And and it's yeah, and Cleveland's defense is not as concerned and if, if the thing to be concerned about going to that game. Um Yeah, Cle- Cleveland's defense is no joke at all. They have a, a a marvelous you know, one of the NFL's best pass wrestlers in Miles Garrett and they have uh you know, a a cornerback who's looking fantastic so far this year that they drafted number 4 overall. So they they really do have a very good defense. I'm I'm m- much more concerned about their defense than I am the Steelers' defense. And, and I think if the Ravens did look at this game lightly and they don't really try and figure out how to neutralize Garrett, how to figure out how to give Joe time to throw and uh, and make things happen, just like they did against the Steelers, I think they'll, they run a big risk of losing this game. But that said, I don't think that'll happen. I think right. this team is riding high off its offensive creativity. This should continue for another week, and we'll see all kinds of plugs pulled in terms of, of what, what they'll do to the Browns. All right, Josiah gets in with, what do you see as a problem with the running game? Is it the O-line? Is it formations, running backs, or all three? Okay, so it's really hard for me to put my finger on one specific thing because I think it is a combination. They don't have a road grader in there. They're like a, a down a road grader without Jensen. So they have Yonda back who was never really a true road grader. He's a great positional blocker and can open holes for you, but they, they've – They've decided they want James Hurst in there over Orlando Brown. That would be the opportunity to get a bigger player in there who can really seal and who can really kick out. I think he gives you much more there. Um, you know, their their left-to-right power run guy is probably not quite as strong as Hurst was last year, although he's not bad. Uh, but the game I just saw, I'm you know it wouldn't surprise me if this is a game where you move Hurst to left guard and you put in Orlando Brown for the first time at right tackle. Uh, and, and see what Hurst can do as a pulling guard. I don't think they'll do it, but but if if there was ever a reason after a particular game so far this year, this is the one where Lewis has looked the worst and, and honestly looks like he might have been playing hurt uh, just from the way he was stumbling around on the field. So I'm I'm uh, you know I, I wouldn't be you know thrilled with that move happening, but I think it is a possibility. And I think the notion of of Lewis moving to center at some point during this year. I think we may be past the point where that's a consideration. I think uh, Lewis, um, we haven't seen the anchoring problems from Skura that we we expected we might see, and Lewis hasn't played well enough, dominantly enough at left guard to figure that he'd be the great anchor at center either. So, uh, you know, we're right now Lewis is the one on the hot seat on the offensive line. That could change with time, but uh, but I think right now that's the that's the situation. All right, let's. Uh... Let's close out uh, the mailbag looking ahead kind of at the year as a whole and Joe Flacco. Joe Skyler gets in with Joe Flacco is on pace for 5,000 passing yards. Uh, do you see him maintaining this or even throwing 4,500 yards? No. Or for, That's yeah. A simple answer is no. Uh, so could, could, he, could he reduce his effectiveness slightly for the rest of the season and still come in with a very high number? Sure. If he did throw for 5,000 yards, it's probably going to be a case where it's not that they pulled out all the stops because they were winning. It's that they started passing a lot more because they were trailing in more games. It wouldn't be a good sign for the defense 
if Joe threw for 5,000 yards. This okay. is one of the NFL's elite defenses. Yes. It, when that when you have that situation, like it or not, Joe Flacco is going to have less impressive passing statistics than just about any other quarterback in the league because he's going to be throwing safer passes. He's going to be throwing less. He's going to be throwing right. to convert first downs, but not necessarily to, to, to throw the deep ball. And he's almost never going to be throwing in the fourth quarter. Right. It's, it's so, game control. It's game control. All right. So, I, I, I missed one more question I want to get in before we get out of here from Marcus, who says, are the Ravens wasting Jordan Lacely by not having him active so far? Yeah, um, that's a good point, Marcus. I, I don't know what they could do to get Lasley in the game. They're Right now, they're having trouble getting Chris Moore snaps. And he's the fourth wide receiver. Looked fantastic, of course. Uh, you know, third-year guy who they're dependent on, you know, in, in maybe leading a youth movement that would that might have to start next year. So I mean, you look at next year's wide receiver core, and they're going to need to find a new deep threat, or they're going to have to re-sign John Brown, which is going to cost a lot of money, I'm afraid. So one of those two is going to have to happen. So that may mean the number one pick goes to a wide receiver next year, or it may mean that Lasley has to step up and be that guy. I don't know if he really is. Uh, so anyway, they're going to need to figure out what they do um, to figure that out. But one way or another, the Ravens have to figure a way to get younger at wide receiver. They can't be on the free agent treadmill and, and be spending $20 million of their cap every year on the wide receiver position just because they're they're too inefficient at drafting and developing receivers. They have to figure out how to do it right, and they have to figure it out at the rookie level, not at the going out and getting a sixth or eighth or ninth year player to uh, to come in and play for the Ravens from free agency. All right, great. Um, this past week, our listeners have done a great job with going to iTunes and writing reviews for the podcast. So I want to encourage everyone to continue to do that, but I do want to address one review that was on there, which is a positive review. Everything that everyone's writing on there is five stars and great, and then they uh, bash me a little bit. As saying I'm not as smart as Ken, but that's fine. That's proper. That's true. But I, but one person on there made a good point where he said the only he said his suggestion to improve the show would be that we need a way for people to send in mailbag questions without a Twitter account. So we're going to come oh. up with a solution, and we'll have a solution by the next episode. So we, well, just an email address would be Either fine for an that, An email right? address, or we'll put it up on one of these websites where you can do a little form, so you can even enter it uh, anonymously if you want. Okay. If, so we'll we'll have a solution in by the next episode. So thank you for that suggestion. Uh, feel free to send show suggestions along, just like you do mailbag questions. And and I my uh, my email is out there. It's it's uh, uh, available to you on the RSR website. I'll let you go there and get it if you if you need to. Uh, other contact information, by the way, I'm, I'm at Film Study Ravens on Twitter. Please follow me if you do have a Twitter account. Uh, if you go out to Russell Street Re Report, you'll see some more developed versions of these same things. If you like tabular data and really like uh, nerding out over the individual stuff, you get a little more there. And, and the big thing you get from the articles there is quarter and time references that allow you to go through my film analysis the same way that I do and, and see if you see the same thing uh, that I do or that I'm full of crap. You can, you, we have the transparency yes. for that. So anyway, Josh, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, your yeah. show. At well, well, we've got, we've got a little bit of business first. I want to, I want to let everyone know we've gotten some comments in about, uh, the podcast not working this, the past, this past week on Google play 
podcast. I think that's what it is. Okay. And that's been fixed as of this evening. And there's been some issues with some of the uh, embedded players on Russell Street not working in certain browsers. That was also fixed this evening. So I want to let you listeners know, thank you for that feedback. We were able to talk with our uh, servers and get all that straightened out. And then I want to talk about uh, our next episode, tomorrow's episode, where we're going to do a Browns preview like we've been doing, and we're going to get on Jeff Lloyd from the Locked on Browns podcast. Okay, very prolific writer, and and he does a lot of these crossover shows. He ought to be a very good guest. Uh, I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, like I, I think all of these with the opponent analysts have gone very well. They're, they're, they're a sharp group, and I hope we've got another good one here and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, and Get you, your mailback questions in for that way, by the way. If you have questions, particularly about the Browns, anything they're doing. Yeah, um, some you know, Baker Mayfield. We will exclude them if they're not tasteful questions. Uh, there's no reason for you to have a distasteful question to, for, for a, a Browns guest just because he's a, uh, you know, from Cleveland or whatever. Right, right, but, right. Leave those for me. Yeah, yeah, we don't have anything that includes it. Who the hell still uses a payphone? If you understand that reference, <laughs> we, yeah, we don't want to hear. Right, right. Um, all right, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Josh Soroka, as well, and check out Birdland Sports, just like you're checking out Russell Street Report. Uh, lots of good podcasts and content over on Birdland Sports. All right, sounds great, Josh. Any any new uh, podcasts up there other than these? Yeah, there's a new section three thirty six uh, that. It came out on Monday night. Great episode. Some Orioles talk, some Ravens talk, um, and just a fun show. Um, not as analytical as this show. Way more commentary and arguing. Um, but it's a good show. And then Dave's View it has a new episode out, and new, and Birdland BS has a new show that just came out this evening along with us. And I believe Neutral Zone and Fraction will have a new show by tomorrow. I mean. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is when we have about six different podcasts, maybe seven episodes, mm-hmm. all hit up on Birdland Sports to fill up your week. Yeah, I don't know about you, but that's when I'm I'm I can't get enough of football and every bit of discussion about the Ravens I want to see on that on those days. Yeah, and it's perfect. It gets you plenty to listen to until Thursday night football, and then you're just fired up and ready for the weekend and ready for Ravens football again. All right, Ken. Well, we will talk soon. Life's good, Josh. We're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. Winning comes in all shapes and sizes. Every day there's an opportunity for a win, just like scratchers from the Virginia Lottery. Every day grab-and-go, every day giftable, every day fun. It's where anticipation meets instant gratification, and they're satisfying to scratch no matter the outcome. Like the new Virginia Lottery Scratcher Colossal Cash. It's loaded with $100 to $500 prizes. 
Now, that's an everyday win. Drive to the nearest Virginia Lottery retail location and pick up a scratcher today. Odds of winning any prize, 1 in 3.21. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.